All right. Well, this morning we are going to be talking about one of the most debated and some may say controversial uh, topics within the Christian faith. Whole denominations have formed over this doctrine. People uh, throughout history have died because of it. Thousands of books have been written on it, and yet the debate still rages on and is part of the reason why we're talking about it this morning. Uh, and that is the doctrine of the ordinances, or uh, maybe you've heard the term uh, sacraments. Uh, and, and the ordinance or the sacraments includes two practices, uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And all you really have to do is, is read through the, the book of Acts and the history of the early church, and you'll, uh, you'll see that those were an integral part of church life and practice. What was, what was known about the church was that they... They baptized and they took the Lord's Supper. And for that reason, this morning, we're going to be looking at uh, practicing the ordinances as the third mark of a healthy church. We've been working our way through this new series, and we saw that the first mark of a healthy church is that the church gathers together to worship God. Uh, The second mark is that when they do gather, the church preaches the Word of God. And now the third mark is that, again, when we gather... We take the Lord's Supper and we baptize to the glory of God. So the church, the third mark of a healthy church is that it practices the ordinances. Now sermon or two sermons could be preached on, you know, this topic alone. Uh, But this morning we're going to be looking more generally at the meaning of each of the ordinances and how we can practice them properly as a church according to God's word and God's design. Before we get into that, I quickly want to define what I mean by the term ordinance. So I keep saying we're called to practice the ordinance, and you might say, okay, well, what does that even mean? Why is he using that fancy word for baptism and the Lord's Supper? And so an ordinance just means something that has been ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ. it's It's a practice that has been decreed by Jesus for his followers to keep and to obey. And it's also important to note that that they're not arbitrary commands. You know, Jesus didn't just pick some random thing and be like, okay, I think that's the ordinance that you're going you're gonna to practice. They have, they have meaning to them. They have symbolization to them. They help us better understand and appreciate what Jesus Christ accomplished in his redemptive work. There's something that we can, we can see with our eyes, and then, and then that helps us to better understand the thing that it is symbolizing. And so some churches have misunderstood that, and, and, and they've said uh, it's not just something that we can see, it's actually something that imparts grace to us, um, but I believe that the teaching of the Word is that it doesn't impart any grace to us, but it does testify to the grace that has already been imparted to us through Jesus Christ. And so the ordinances, they're important. We can't just neglect them and brush them off as, as you know, irrelevant or ritualistic, there can be a temptation to, to maybe see baptism as something, you know, I'll do it when I get around to it. Or the Lord's Supper as something that we just, you know, we check off our box once a month at the beginning of the month so that we can say, okay, we've done the Lord's Supper. No, these are, these are essential to the Christian walk. These have been instituted by Jesus, and they're the one of the main things that separates the people of God from those who are not the people of God. They, they lit- we're talking about the marks of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper literally marks those who are and who are not 
one who bears the name of Christ. And so with the little time that we have this morning, we're going to look at, at how we can be as a church obedient to Jesus and how we can practice these ordinances to the glory of God. And so the first one we're going to be looking at is baptism. And instead of just staying this morning in kind of one passage, we're going to be jumping around a little bit so we can get a more fully orbed picture of the Bible's teaching on baptism. And now the first uh, question that we should ask when talking about baptism is obviously, what is baptism? You know, what does the Bible say that baptism is? What does it mean? What does it represent? What does it do if it does anything to us? What is, what is baptism? We're going to look at three things from Scripture that baptism is. And so first, we see that baptism is a command. Baptism is a command. So you can open your Bibles to Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. We're going to see that in this passage, uh, Jesus, he's just risen from the grave. And he gives his last command to the disciples before he ascends up into heaven. And this is what uh, you've probably heard called the Great Commission. And so Jesus leaves us with this great commission to go and make disciples before he, uh, he ascends up to his throne in heaven. And this is what he says in the Great Commission for his church. It's Matthew 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we see here in the Great Commission that Jesus really gives four commands for his people. First command is to go. We are to go out. The second is to to make disciples. The third is to then baptize them. And the fourth is to teach them to obey all that Christ has commanded. And so if we're to be obedient to that, we, we don't just wait for people to come to us to be like, oh, what is the gospel? We are to go out and to, make, and, and to preach the gospel. And then we're called to make disciples. And disciple means a, a follower of Jesus. We're, we're supposed to lead people to the cross that the Lord might convert and change their hearts. And then we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we are to continue to disciple them, to continue to help them to grow as Christians, uh, discipling them in the commands of Christ. So that is, our, that is really our mission as Christians on this earth. If we're, if we're missing that, we're really missing what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be faithful to Christ as a Christian. And one thing you'll notice is that, that baptism is actually an important and essential part of that. You take baptism out of that and you're not fulfilling the mission that Jesus gave you. And the book of Acts highlights the importance of this command and the disciples' faithfulness in keeping it. In Acts 2 verse 41, those who received the word were baptized. Acts 8, verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Acts 18, verse 8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, 
And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. And I could give you multiple more examples. We see that baptism is so important because it's part of the mission for the church. It's being commanded by our Lord, and we see that modeled for us in the early church. And so then the first answer to that question, what is baptism? It's that it is a command. Jesus has commanded us to be baptized and to go and be baptizing. And so second now, what is baptism? Baptism is a sign. So now you can turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. See, baptism is not simply a command that the church is, is given by Christ that we are called to be obedient to. Baptism represents something. It symbolizes something. It's an, it's an external sign of an internal reality. You know, just like your, your wedding ring, it doesn't actually, you know, anyone can wear, a, wear a, re- a wedding ring. The wedding ring doesn't make you married to your spouse. But what the wedding ring does is it symbolizes the covenant and the union that you have made with your spouse. It's an external symbol of, of something that has, has happened, a, a covenant that has been made between two people. And Paul's going to explain here that, that baptism also symbolizes something. And so Romans 6, uh, verses 1 to 8. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And so just quickly pause. Paul here has just made the argument that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. We are not saved by the things that we do. And so the logical kind of uh, objection to that is, okay, well then why do we not, why don't we just sin so that you know, the grace of God looks even more glorious. Uh, and Paul's going to deal with it. He says, by no means. And this is the reason why. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so can you follow kind of Paul's argument that he's making here? And he's saying that after we have placed our faith in Jesus and we have been saved by his grace, we no longer walk in sin the way that we used to because when we put our faith in Christ, something changes completely within us. Our old self, our old nature that was a slave to sin, it has died. And it has been buried with Christ. You know, the, the old Lucas that used to be a slave to sin, that used to love sin, that used to serve no master but sin. He's been killed. He's been put to death. Crucified with Christ on the cross. That's why Paul can say, I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but who? Christ who lives in 
me. Our old self has, has died and has been put to death if we have placed our faith in Jesus. And then on top of that, we are by faith also given new life. Verse 5 says, if we've been united with him, with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so if you have died with Jesus, guess what? You're going to be raised up with, with Jesus to new life. And just as Christ didn't die on, on the cross and, and remain in the grave, he was raised to new life. And so too will we be raised to new life that we might walk in the newness of that life. And then Paul brings in this idea of baptism into this. Saying that this is what our baptism symbolizes. You see, in our baptism, what are we doing? We are going under the water, symbolizing the death, the drowning of the old self, the old way that we used to live, the old idols and desires that we used to serve. That old person is drowned and put to death and buried in the grave. But that's not the end. Because up out of the water comes the believer, showing that death has not won. That there is a new creation, a new life, a new self that comes out of the water raised with Christ. It's what Paul calls a a new creation with a new heart and a new spirit able to receive the promises of the new covenant. And so that is what what baptism is symbolizing. Now as a quick aside, uh, if it is true that baptism represents our, our death, and our resurrection in Christ, what, what do you think is the, the most biblical method of baptism? What do you think the most biblical method of baptism would be? Throughout history, people have baptized by, by sprinkling with water, people have baptized by pouring with water, or people have baptized by, by fully immersing someone into water. And it's by no means a matter of salvation. I think it's by no means a matter of denying someone their, their baptism, but If we want to be a healthy church, according to God's word, we want to try to strive for what we see as the biblical method of baptism. And so based on this, the symbolization of baptism, what is the proper method? I think uh, that if baptism does indeed represent death and resurrection, uh, then full immersion into water and out again best represents that. I think in the Bible we, we see this. Not only does uh, baptize, uh, or baptizo, the Greek word mean to immerse or to dip. But instances of, of baptism in the Bible seem to indicate that it was by full immersion. For example, in John 3, verse 23, when describing the baptism of John, it says, John also was baptizing at Anon, near Salem, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Or Mark 1, verse 9 to 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Or Acts 8, verse 36. And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And so, to me at least, it seems... I wouldn't bet all of my money on it that because they're going to these places that have abundant water to baptize, that because they're going down into the water rather than bringing the water out, uh, that baptism 
was likely by full immersion. They're going in there. They're dunking these people completely under the water and, and pulling them up. And so all that to say, that's, that's the aside finish. All that to say, uh, baptism is important because not only is it a command, but it's also a sign. It's a sign that testifies to something. It testifies to what God has done internally in our hearts, and that is shown externally by the symbolization of death and resurrection when we are united with Christ. So baptism is a command. Baptism is a sign. And last we see that baptism is an initiation. It's an initiation. See, when you are baptized, you're publicly declaring that you are a Christian. And you are identifying yourself with God and his people. It's like in baptism, you've joined a new sports team. And now it's time, you've joined this team, now it's time to actually put on the jersey so that everybody can see, I am on this team. This is, this is my team. These are my people. And that's why we baptize in the name of. That phrase, I baptize you in the name of. Jesus commands back in, in 28 verse 19 to, to baptize in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. And now that's not, that's not arbitrary. That is, that is necessary for a Christian baptism. Now that's what makes baptism distinctly Christian. See, there's this story in Acts 19 which I find quite interesting, I think, which illustrates this point. Paul, he's, he's going around and he's, he's ministering in these different places and he comes across some believers in Corinth. And he asks them, you know, into what were you baptized? So into whose name were you baptized? And they answer him, into John's baptism. And then what does Paul do? Does he say, okay, all right, I guess, I guess that's good enough? No, he, he takes them and he baptizes them again in the name of Jesus. And that's because baptism is a public identification with the Trinitarian God and his people. It's a, it's a public initiatory rite into the church of God, the new covenant people of God. And that's why baptism so closely follows faith or belief and, and repentance in the book of Acts. Because to be a part of the church was to be baptized. Listen to Acts 2 verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now what do we notice here? That people believe, they're baptized, and then are added. They're added. Well, added to what? Well, they're added to the church. Those who believed and are baptized become part of the local church in Jerusalem. I mean, someone maybe was there that morning, Peter was, was preaching, they believed, but then they quickly left before the baptism happened. They weren't counted in this number of 3,000. And why is that reason? Well, because baptism is the initiation into the local church. And so baptism then is a command. Baptism is a sign, and baptism is an initiation into the church. And so that answers the question, what is, what is baptism? But it also raises a few more questions, I think, uh, as well as a, as a few conclusions. And so what conclusions can we then draw from the Bible's teaching on 
baptism. I think the first one is, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. Baptism is not optional for the Christian. And baptism doesn't, doesn't save you by any means. We are saved by, by grace alone through faith alone. But if you are a Christian and you want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ and you've not been baptized, you should be baptized. To disobey that command of Christ is to disobey Christ himself. And so if you are a Christian, someone who has repented of your sins, someone who has placed your faith in Jesus Christ and surrendered to him as Lord of your life, you need to be baptized. Following the death of Christ, the Bible doesn't really know of an unbaptized believer. All Christians are baptized. It's what the Christian does in obedience to Christ. Now, to be honest, on top of that, you know, baptism is, is a joy. It's a joy to be baptized into the triune God. You are, you are publicly identifying yourself with him and his people. You are, you are declaring to the world around you that you have been purchased by the blood of Christ. Your old self has been crucified with Christ, and you've been raised to new life with him. You know, it's, a, it's a privilege to be baptized in his name. So the question then is, is if, if you haven't, what are you waiting for? And if you're afraid, and, and I get that, I mean, standing up uh, in front of everyone, uh, giving a, a, a short testimony of how the Lord has shown his grace to you, it can be intimidating. It can be intimidating, and, and, and it can be, uh, there can be some fear in doing that. But you don't have to be afraid. You should be more afraid that you're being disobedient to the command of Christ. Or maybe you're worried what you're your family might think. But you should be more worried about what, what Christ might think. Maybe you've just been, you know, putting it off because, you know, baptism doesn't save me, so, you know, do I really have to, to do it? I'll just put that off until it's convenient. But you need to stop. Do you do that with other commands? Do you say, I'll put off not committing adultery on my wife until it's a little bit more convenient? No, you, we, we have the commands of Christ and we, we seek to obey them right away. And so if you haven't, it's, it's time. It's time to be baptized. And you can come and talk to me, and, and that would really make my day, and I will, I will gladly make that happen if you are truly uh, a believer in Christ. And so that's the first conclusion, uh, that you should be baptized if you haven't. Uh, now a second conclusion uh, is that baptism should only be applied to believers, if baptism is an external sign representing an internal reality in a person's life, specifically their death and resurrection in Christ, then the sign should only be given to those for whom the internal reality is actually present. And now this is a, a debate within Christianity. Do we baptize believers and their children, or do we only baptize those who make a credible profession of faith? And so I answer this question, I say these things with, with deep love for, for those who don't hold the same uh, opinion as me. Uh, there are some great men and women of the faith who um, far surpass me in biblical knowledge, far surpass me in, in worthiness of Christians who don't hold uh, this same view as me. And so I respect and I, I care for them, and I'm not seeking to dishonor uh, anyone here who, who holds that view in any way, but I think... That when you, actually, when you actually look at what the Bible has to say, 
without bringing any sort of lens upon it, it is, it's, it's pretty clear uh, that only those who make a credible profession of faith should be baptized. Uh, and in all of the examples of baptism in the Bible, faith of the one being baptized is always necessary and always precedes their baptism. And Paul says in Colossians 2 verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. See, infants, they, they can't express this faith, and therefore, by definition, an infant cannot be baptized. Now, they can have water poured on them. They can have water sprinkled on them. You could even, even dunk, as some Orthodox churches do, dunk the infant under water in full immersion. But none of those are baptism because there is no faith exercised on behalf of the one being baptized. There's also no mention of, of infants being baptized in the Bible, nor is there a command for us to do so. Sign of the new covenant should only be applied to those who are purchased by the blood of the new covenant. And the Bible is clear that, that is, that's only believers in Jesus Christ. So as I said, good and godly Christians, even some of us sitting in this room, you know, disagree on this issue. And it by no means determines whether you're a Christian or whether you're getting into heaven. But I do think that it, it, it strengthens the church. It protects the purity of the local church. And it honors the Lord when we, when we baptize believers only. You know, a third and, and related conclusion, or perhaps maybe a, a question you're asking, which is a question that I had to ask myself, but what if I was baptized as an infant? Was it, was it improper method and timing, but still valid before the Lord? Is that, is that good enough, or should I be rebaptized? Well, I think the answer would be yes, you should. And I probably wouldn't even call it a rebaptism. Because you need to ask the question was your baptism what the Bible describes as baptism? Was it an expression of your faith or your parents' faith? Bless your parents for, for doing that. Did it truly symbolize the, the death and burial and resurrection of Christ as it was meant to? Was it done in obedience to the command of Christ? Did it, did it identify you as a son and daughter of the Trinitarian God? And so overall, you're asking yourself the question, was this a, a biblical baptism? And if not, then what's the only logical conclusion? That you should be baptized in a biblical manner. And as I said, if it helps, I was baptized as a baby. And, and then later in life, when I became a believer, I was, I was truly, truly baptized. And now one final conclusion. Uh, since baptism is a mark of a healthy church, and this, those were more individual applications. This is a more application for our church. If, if we are a healthy church, if, if baptism and ordinances is a sign of a healthy church, then we should be seeing baptisms in our church at Evergreen. The church that isn't baptizing believers, whether that be new converts that are coming in and coming to faith, or our children as we disciple and raise them up in the Lord, then we need to, we need to question ourselves. We need to say, are we really being a healthy church in, in, in in, in all of the areas we're called to be. See, baptism is often, though not always, an indicator of whether the church is fulfilling the great commission of Christ. 
And so if we aren't baptizing, then we need to at least evaluate if we are failing to follow Christ in some way. And so uh, it's not to say that you need to have a baptism every single Sunday, uh, but there should be at least some baptisms uh, that you see if we, are, if we are going to be a healthy church. Okay, so with that, we've finished up our first ordinance, the ordinance of baptism, commanded by the Lord and practiced by the church to the glory of God. Uh, and may the Lord be gracious to us as we seek to do that as well. And so now let's move on to the next ordinance, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And again, we're going to try and answer the question, what is the Lord's Supper? And you think baptism was a topic of debate. Uh, the Lord's Supper throughout church history has proven uh, even more uh, contentious among Christians. Different denominations have answered this question in very different ways. You might know a Catholic, and you'll know that the, the Catholics hold very high uh, what they call the Mass. And in the Mass, they claim that the elements, the bread and the wine, become the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. And they are, they are sacrificed once again upon the altar. That's why at a Catholic church you'll go in. The center is not the pulpit for the preaching of the Word of God. The center is the altar, where Christ is once again offered up as a sacrifice. And then you had Lutherans, and, and Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon come, come along and say, okay, that's not quite right. Jesus is not sacrificed again. He's a once and for all sacrifice. But Jesus does say, this is my body. Jesus does say, this is my blood. So some, Christ somehow is present within these elements. You know, he's, he's, he's under, Luther says he's under, he's in, and he's with the bread and the wine. Yet he won't go as far as saying this is the, like when you're eating the bread and you're eating the wine, you're eating his, his physical body. And then there's Calvin and the Reformed view, which, which teaches that Christ, he's, he's not physically present. There's no, there's no even, even, even thought that Christ is, is somehow in, within, surrounding the elements. But instead, we are spiritually brought up into the presence of Christ where we get a taste of the, the great marriage supper of the Lamb that we are, we are going to taste in its fullness one day. And so Christ is he's spiritually present in that he doesn't leave and descend his, his throne. He's always sitting on his throne, yet he brings us up to him by the Spirit. And then lastly, there's the Zwinglian or the memorial view. And that is that the Lord's Supper, it's, it's a commemoration. It's a bringing to mind the death of Christ and what was accomplished for us. And so Christ doesn't bring us up to him. Christ doesn't, isn't present. It's, it's a symbol, and it, and it represents something. And so which view is correct? I mean, is Christ bodily present in the elements? Is it a time of simply just remembering what Christ has done, or is it more than that? And I want to quickly look at four things that the Bible does say about the Lord's Supper, and then we can draw our conclusions from that. And so the first one, just as baptism was ordained and commanded by the Lord Jesus, so too the Lord's Supper is commanded for the believer. You can turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. 
And in this passage, to give you a little bit of the context, uh, Paul, he's, he's talking about the Lord's Supper, and he's, he's quoting for them the words of Jesus. And so we often read when we take the Lord's Supper, Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 11, but he's actually quoting uh, Jesus' words in Luke chapter 22, when Jesus is having his last Passover, and he institutes this practice that we call the Lord's Supper. And so let me read, uh, starting in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so Paul here, he says, you know, for I receive from the Lord, the Lord has given this to him, what I also delivered to you. And he goes on to quote the words of Jesus, and, he's, and, and we're told to do this, to do this in remembrance of me. And so Lord's Supper, therefore, is a command that we are to do. And just as neglecting to be baptized is, is disobedient to Christ, so too is neglecting to celebrate the Lord's Supper. But just as, as baptism is not just a command, but also a sign, the Lord's Supper is also a sign. The bread and the wine, we know, represent the body and the blood of Christ offered up for us. See, it wasn't a, it wasn't a coincidence that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper on the night of Passover. The Passover, uh, we know, was a time of remembering and celebrating God's great act of deliverance when God saved his people from Egypt? And then we ask, how did God deliver them? How did he, how did he save them on that first Passover? Well, we're told that the Israelites were to go and to take an unblemished lamb, a lamb that was without defect, and they were to sacrifice it, and they were to take the blood of the lamb and spread it over their doorposts. And then when the angel of the Lord came and put to death the firstborn. Those who had the blood of the Lamb spread would be saved. And Jesus is now implying to his disciples that he is the Passover Lamb. That he is the one who was sinless and completely unblemished and the one by whom his blood, by, by whose blood and body they will be saved. And so when we when we take the bread, we recognize that this represents the body of Christ. That the man Jesus was offered up for us. That his, his body hung on the cross in the place of ours. That the whipping and the beating and the battering that he took, we deserve that on our bodies. That because his body hangs there lifelessly on the cross, that we are able to be spared from the wrath of God. That's what happens when we, when we, when we think on the bread. And when we, when we take the, the cup, we recognize that this represents the blood of Christ. And that this blood washes us white as snow. That it is perfect 
It is the perfect and precious blood of Jesus that makes a propitiation for our sin. That it appeases the wrath of God and that it allows us to stand before God as pure and holy. I think of the great old hymn. We sang it last night uh, after dinner. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's vein. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. The blood of Christ, it renders you, it renders me guiltless, guiltless before the Lord. And so the the bread and the blood, they're not random symbols. They represent the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're a sign to you of the forgiveness of your sins that you have through his blood and his body. And so we've seen that the Lord's Supper, it's a command, but it's much more than that. It is a sign. And then thirdly, we see that it is a memorial. Jesus's, the Lord's Supper is a memorial. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So we do this, and as we do it, we are called to remember. We're called to remember. And what we're remembering is what I just described. The giving and the, of the body and blood of Christ. We remember our sin, we remember our rebellion, we remember all of our transgressions and iniquities that made the crucifixion of Christ necessary. But then we are filled with joy because we also remember that it was all paid for. All of it paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. And then we go and we remember that all of the promises of God now apply to us because of what He has done. When we hold the the bread in your hand and the cup in the other, you can look at both of them and you can be assured of the promises of God. You can be assured that no matter what sin you have committed, that if you have your faith in Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ has washed that sin away. You can be assured that you are a child of God made new by the blood of the Son of God. You can be assured that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can be assured that his sacrifice was a once and for all sacrifice, and therefore nothing else is needed to justify you before the Lord. To the Lord's Supper, it's a glorious time. It is a glorious time of remembrance of the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then finally, the Lord's Supper is a proclamation a proclamation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, every time the church gathers and partakes in the Lord's Supper, we're proclaiming the death of Jesus Christ. And not only that, we are also proclaiming that Jesus Christ will come again. So Paul says, do this until he comes, which means that we are proclaiming that he will come again. And so the Lord's Supper, it's a, it's a proclamation of a past event, but it's also an assurance of a future event. It's an assurance of a future event and a proclaiming that Christ is going to come. He is going to judge. He is going to finally and fully save us from our sins. He'll set straight all that is wrong in this world and he will establish the kingdom of God in all of its fullness. And so the Lord's Supper, it's a a proclamation of what God has done 
and God will do. And so hopefully then that answers uh, some of your questions regarding the Lord's Supper. It's a command, it's a sign, it's a memorial, and it's a proclamation. And so then what applications can we, can we draw from this then for our church? Well, first, we should be a church that practices the Lord's Supper. If we fail to do that, we fail to be obedient to Christ. Now, this raises some questions. Okay, we know that we should practice it, but how do we practice it? You know, how often do we do it? Who can do it? Do we do it with a meal? Do we do it on our own, or do we do it in the presence of others? Do we use, you know, unleavened bread like Jesus would have used, or do we do leavened bread? Do we, do we use grape juice, or do we use wine uh, like Christ would have done? What, what about some of these practical questions that we have? And, and they're good questions, and I think the answer to some of them uh, is, is clear. And I think others, uh, there's some freedom in Christ. There's, there's some freedom in how we practice that within the bounds that are laid out for us. And so I'm going to quickly try and answer uh, some of these because they'll help with the application of this for our church. And so first, how often do we do the Lord's Supper? How often do we do the Lord's Supper? Without getting into to much detail, I personally am of the conviction that it should be celebrated weekly by the church, that every time the church comes together, they should celebrate the Lord's Supper. Now, there's no clear command that you must celebrate this every week, and so I wouldn't bind someone to this, but I do think that the evidence of the, the, the church in Acts and, and of the epistles is that they are, they're coming together and they're taking the Lord's Supper every time that they gather together uh, to worship the Lord. And, and some examples of that is in Acts 20, verse 7. It says, on the first day of the week, when they were gathered together to break bread, or as in, as in the reason they're gathering is to break bread, uh, or 1 Corinthians 11, verse 18, Paul says, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And so specifically here, he's, he's talking about division over the Lord's Supper, and he's saying when you come together, at the times when you come together, this division has arisen over the Lord's Supper, implying that whenever they are coming together, what are they doing? They're practicing the Lord's Supper. So I don't think it's necessary the Lord's Supper be taken every week, but I think most certainly we should be taking it often, uh, and we should be seeing, okay, are we going to be more obedient to Christ if we, are, if we are partaking of the Lord's table together every time we gather Next, that's the first question. Next, uh, who can take communion? Who can take communion? I think the scripture is pretty clear uh, on this one. Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood. Therefore, the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who have been purchased by the blood of the new covenant. Those who have been covered by the blood of Christ, just as the Passover was reserved for who? It was reserved for those who had been covered by the blood of the Lamb. And so the Lord's Supper is the same. It's those who have been covered by the blood of the perfect and sinless Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then Paul also says later in 1 Corinthians that you're not to take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. If you do so, you're bringing judgment upon yourself. 
There's no manner more unworthy than the rejection of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now, you don't have to be a perfect Christian to take the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a sinless Christian to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is for uh, sinners like you and me. But what you do need to have is faith in what that Lord's Supper represents. Uh, that Christ has, has died and risen from the dead and offers you new life. And so the Lord's Supper is reserved for believers. And then finally, last, uh, last question here. Uh, do we do it on our own or do we do it in the presence of others? Well, every example of the Lord's Supper in Scripture is in the presence of others when the church has gathered. Uh, so it's, it's, it's an ordinance of the church. It's not an ordinance of an individual. It's an ordinance of, of Christ's church and should be done in the community of the church. It's a, it's a corporate practice done by the body of Christ together for the edification of that body. Now, that's why we often call it communion. Because it's done within the community of the believers. And that's why, you know, COVID, uh, first, it's a big problem because the church, by definition, uh, is, is the people of God who gather together to worship. But then also, uh, saying churches cannot meet for worship is a direct attack upon the Lord's Supper. Because it's to be done in community of believers. And so that's the last question. The rest of the questions, you know, Grape juice versus wine, leavened bread versus unleavened. You know, do I, do, do we get men to come up and do we pass it out or do we, do we all walk up to the front and pass it out? I think all of these questions, that, there's areas there where the Bible gives us freedom. As long as we do what Romans 14 says, you know, whatever we do, we do so in honor of the Lord. Now, we want to try, I think, to be as, as close to the Bible as we can in that. So I would lean more towards, um, let's say, using wine, uh, but having an alternative maybe of grape juice for those who might struggle with that, and then uh, probably using unleavened bread uh, to be as close to the way that Christ uh, himself has practiced it. And so that's, that's it. That's our, our look at the ordinances uh, that Christ has commanded us. We see that uh, there is uh, the command for us to go and be baptizing believers uh, as a sign of the work of Christ in and through us. And then there's the command for us to be partaking of the Lord's Supper, proclaiming his death until he comes. And so if we here at, at Evergreen desire to be a healthy church, you know, we can't set these things off to the side. We can't treat them as irrelevant. They're important to Christ enough so that he commanded them to us. They're important to the early church uh, in the book of Acts enough so that they were practicing them all the time, and they should be important to us. We should be practicing them, practicing them biblically, practicing them often, and of course, practicing them to the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you, God, for um, the teaching of your word. Lord, we thank you that we are a people who often forget. We're a people who often um, forget the things that you have, have done, forget the things that you have commanded. And, and in a way, Lord, you have shown us your grace by giving us the ordinances to practice as a church. Lord, that when we baptize 
believers, we recognize, Lord, the, the, the death and resurrection that we ourselves have gone through. Lord, when we, when we baptize and we see uh, the symbolization of, of uh, the washing away of our sins, we recognize, Lord, that our sins have been washed away. Lord, when we see the, the dead self go down into the water but raised to new life, we, we're reminded of the, the victory of Christ over the enemies of sin and death. And Lord, when we come then as a church, after we've been, uh, we've been dedicated and initiated into the church to, to gather and partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember that sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And I pray, Lord, that that would never grow old in our minds. Lord, that we would never graduate on from the gospel, that we would, we would love the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would penetrate our hearts, uh, and that we would uh, be a church that honors you by the practicing of the ordinances that you've commanded us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.